Hello, my name is Tabea Hessler. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Zurich. If we have nice contact, we think that the others will treat us more equally, but maybe this is not always the case, and maybe that also perpetuates structural inequalities. everyone, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Researching Diversity podcast. I'm Miriam Schwarzenthal, and I'm a junior professor at the University of Wuppertal in Germany. And I'm Tuche Aral, and I'm a doctor researcher and a lecturer at the University of Potsdam. Today, Miriam and I are hosting Tabea Hessler, a senior researcher at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. So what can our listeners expect from this episode, Miriam? First, we talked to Tabea about how she became interested in her research on social change and in research with the LGBTQI community. And second, through the article that she brought, we reflected on the fact that contact may reduce prejudice between groups, but at the same time, it may actually weaken the willingness of disadvantaged groups to pursue social equity. Then Tabea also talked about challenges within academia for early career researchers. Last but not least, we also got some advice from Tabea about how to carry large international collaborations. We hope you enjoy listening to our episode too. Okay, let's get started. Welcome, Tabea. Thanks for being here. Um, as in every episode, we will start talking about the past. So we're curious, why did you become interested in the topic of social change and research with LGBTQI individuals in general? So were there any specific events that made you really become active in these topics? Yeah, already during high school, I was really interested in better understanding why people discriminate against other groups and what we can do to change this. So during my time as a school president, I launched a campaign against uh, mobbing, racism and homophobia. And uh, because there was topics that were not really discussed at school, I also tried to organize an event where we would bring LGBT people into school to uh, educate students on LGBT issues. And we had really firm resistance from our principal who told us that there's no homosexual people at school. Also with a discussion about racism, he said that there's no racism at school, so we shouldn't bring up the topic. And that was really frustrating on one hand, but really motivated us students to do more. So we decorated the whole school overnight. We got the keys from our housekeeper and then we really had a big campaign and we invited the press and we had posters everywhere where students were either being same-sex couples if they were normally straight and then me and another queer student we did a opposite sex couple and we wrote if that would be like this that would be okay too for a tolerant school and uh, that was kind of the start of my engagement more back then as an activist being a student then later I was at the German Sport University in Cologne and I was really shocked that in Cologne at one of the LGBT capitals in Germany none of the particularly male students were openly out some of them even had fake girlfriends I mean we talk here about about 2010, 2012, so not that long ago. And I thought it was really, really shocking that people had to conceal their identities. I also know people that had to stop their studies because they couldn't deal with this pressure of concealing their identity and making up fake stories, particularly where if they were playing in higher leagues in sport. So also that really motivated me to change something. So I got a little bit engaged back then at the German Sports University. And then when I started my PhD, I thought, okay, I would like to really bring this topic also into my research. Yeah, that's super interesting because also you said this university time that people were like concealing their identities. It's 2010 and I think same-sex marriage became legalized in Germany 2014 or... No, 17. 17. Okay, so like after seven years, it sounded a little bit more like, okay, but like in this usual life, I think like this legislation passed by from the government, like and people voted. But in the daily life as a young person, he still won't like try to yeah hide his identity. That's not a yeah, it's quite a close time actually, like a current time. That's very interesting. Yes, and honestly, I still expect that it's still the case. I mean, we have hardly any male athletes who is openly out. If you look at the Bundesliga in Germany, but also in other things, people come sometimes out after the end of the career, but there's still a pressure to really conceal one's identity. And we also conducted a survey at the German Sport University about four years ago. And also there, there seems really this normative expectation that all the students think that other students are really hostile against LGBTQ students and athletes. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Also, like, there's also this topic of identity not matching, right? Like, the sports person has, like, a certain identity and characteristic, like, doesn't match with, like, a person, like, a gay or bisexual man, like, this uh, identity magic. And it's also quite difficult for people to imagine. I think you can be a footballer and who can be a gay person. And yeah, that's quite interesting. But thank you so much for uh, sharing your personal experiences throughout the high school and then why you became interested in these topics. What I'm curious about is that so becoming a researcher is like actually a particular career. And then has it always been something in your mind? Is it like a dream job to become a researcher? Or did you had like a different kind of dream job as a kid in mind? Oh, as a kid, I had different dream jobs. I was definitely not being a researcher. I think I wanted to be a soccer professional. Or I think at some point I even thought a lawyer, but then more a lawyer to protect the weak. And I think also very long I thought about studying medicine. Yeah, so, I mean, in the end, I started to study sport. Then I also studied psychology at the Long Distance University in Hagen. And then I switched for the master to the University of Cologne. So there was always a little bit this tension, what do I want to do? As I said, I was always interested in the issue of social justice, promoting diversity, better understanding why people discriminate and what we can do against it. And uh, therefore, I did different internships already during uh, my studies. I worked at the... German Sport University, where I was involved in a project on the Paralympics game. They were assessing how they were broadcasted in different countries. Also the narratives that have been told. Then I did another internship at the UCLA in Los Angeles, where I was working on um, a topic. It was about police violence against uh, people of color. That is still, of course, happening in the U.S. and was really shocking to see actual data on police violence. And then later I was also in New Zealand and Chile doing some work also in the intergroup context. And all of that experience really motivated me to stay in academia and to pursue my PhD. And now I'm still there after my PhD. And during all these internships and the research experience abroad, did you have any specific maybe people who inspired you and encouraged you to go into research or maybe mentors or also role models where you said they really helped me, you know, to pursue this path and maybe help me along the way? Yeah, I mean, I think one, one role model was Roberto Gonzalez. He's from Chile. And uh, he has a, web, a big network with international scholars. He does a lot of longitudinal studies and he also really pushes to implement changes in the Chilean context. He has a lot of connection to the government. So that was definitely something really influential for me. Then later on, um, Nuret Schnabel from Israel and Colette from La. I think they are two really strong female scholars that also really inspired me to continue my work. And yeah, and then later I met Christina Olsen. She's doing a lot of work on trans use and I think also with her work she really has a big social impact and that's something that's really important for me like I, I think we have to bridge this gap between academia and the general public and I was always looking for people that really did this and that really didn't only want to publish and hide journals but really have an impact outside of academia as well. Yeah, and I think I mean, it's not always so easy to bridge the gap between academia and the public, right? And there's also, I think, different parties in academia who support that more or less. And did you also encounter really challenges along your way or times where you felt really discouraged during your research career? And what motivated you to keep going or did you not experience it? Yeah, I think there were different challenges. I mean, first, coming from the long distance university, when I switched to my master, people really looked down on us because we were like the second cohort. And also the fellow students didn't really know what to do. There's no end at a long-distance university in Hagen. And also some professors were really surprised when they asked me whether I, why I'm so good in statistics. And then they heard that I'm from the long-distance university and they were like, oh, have people actually learned something there? So that was maybe the first big challenge. Then also with the internship, I had some really great experiences, but I also had experiences that people really exploited me. Sometimes they even went abroad and then people just used me to type in data. And that was really challenging, particularly since I didn't have so much money. It took me a lot of time to save it and also to write grant application to be able to go. So I think there's still a lot of hierarchy and sometimes also abuse of young scholars and students. Then also later, I mean, this challenge to bring in the LGBT context, also in our multinational project at the beginning, people were not really up for it. And I really had to fight by convincing one by one the researchers. In the end, we collected data in more than 20 countries, but it took me a long time to convince people that it's important. And I'm at the outreach. I mean, we're in this privileged position in Switzerland that they're grant specific for outreach. And we got one of those grants that really helped us doing some of the work. 
But of course, still within academia, some people don't value it that much. And the time that you spend into writing reports for the general public, etc., is time lost on writing papers. So for some people, they perceive it as a zero-sum game where the clear advice is to focus more on academic output and less on the outreach. But I think also there's slowly a shift and people start to see the value in outreach work as well. And so you really did encounter some challenges, right? And everything was not going so easy from the beginning on. So honestly, I think it's very nice that you kept going and also are making changes, you know, and did not let yourself be discouraged. But like, how did you, where did you get the strength from and this, you know, have this goal in mind? Like what kept you going and also overcoming all these barriers along the way? Well, good question. I don't know. I think I've always been a little bit of fighter. And if I really want to do something, I try to do it. I mean, already with doing, no, I did a sport university and in parallel the psych studies. So I have a double degree in a bachelor and people told me it's not feasible. So I thought, okay, I can give it a go and either it's, I manage or I fail. And then later, I mean, no, like sometimes I had this personal values where I said that's really important for me and I try to do it. If I cannot do it this way, then at some point I leave academia. For me, there's no reason to stay in academia if you don't have an output in the actual work. So that is one of my requirements that I want to stay in academia. And again, there's also, there's a really great international network. There's a lot of advantages of being an academic, but also a lot of disadvantages in the current system. This brings us to our next section, the present. Which paper did you bring today? I brought a paper by Tamar Sugai. Tamar is a scholar from Israel. It's called The Irony of Harmony. Intergroup contact can produce false expectation of equality. And Tamar and her colleagues wrote those influential papers in the early 2000s, and it really stimulated a lot of new research. Basically, for many, many years, contact was always perceived as inherently good, because we know that bringing people into contact can reduce prejudice. And they challenged a little bit this premise by saying it's maybe too simplistic, because contact, if we only focus on increasing harmony, it might have also negative consequences that um, by perpetuating inequality. Yeah, I chose this paper because I think it was really a paradigm shift that started to challenge a lot of research and stimulated a lot of new research. And um, I also read the paper and in the paper they ran an experiment actually, right, and a survey study. And the experiments, they assigned participants, I think, to two groups, right? And then they were either given the power to allocate cost credits or marbles. So the group that was given the power to allocate cost credits was the high power or high status group. And the one who was allocated the power to distribute marbles was kind of the lower power group. And then they asked them to discuss different topics. So either to discuss a topic focusing on commonalities between two groups or uh, to discuss topics focusing on the, the differences between the two groups. And then after this discussion, I think the participants, they completed the survey measure and were asked to allocate these marbles or course credits. And what would you say, what was the main or main outcome of this experiment that really stood out for you or that would you say is important about this study? Yeah, I think what was really interesting is that people who were in this commonality focus group, if they belong to the lower power group, they expected that the high power group would be uh, or treat them nice, more nicely because at first they rated them to be more friendly or they had better attitudes towards them. But then again, no, the expectation was that this attitude leads to a more equal treatment. And indeed, that was maybe the unique part of this experiment, that the allocation of the high power group didn't differ that much. So there was a big mismatch between the expectation. If the contact is nice and we focus on commonalities, then we will all be treated more fairly. And the actual outcome where this is not really the case. And I think that really translates into those everyday contact situations between different minority and majority groups, where if we have nice contact, we think that the others will treat us more equally, but maybe Maybe this is not always the case and maybe that also perpetuates structural inequalities. So by really seeing that if we focus on differences, maybe we have more accurate expectation of the treatment, we can actually try to challenge those. And they didn't just find that in an experiment, but also in a survey study in a more naturalistic setting, right? So they also ran a survey study with Arabs in Israel and also asked them about their perceptions of intergroup contact or I think intergroup friendships. 
and the attention they paid to inequality. And I think they essentially also found the same relations, right? That attention to inequality was related to more support for social change, but then the more contact there, the less attention they paid to inequality. And then what would you say, what are the implications of these findings for us, for example, also as educators, you know, if we learned oh, we should promote maybe cooperative learning and contact between groups, but what does the study actually say? Like what, what should we pay attention to when we do that? Yeah, I think this study and also a whole bunch of follow-up studies, including also our multinational study where we replicated this finding in really many, many different countries and contexts, shows that it's not enough if people just get to like each other. I think it's a very important step and it's the first step that we have to start to create trust between groups. But then we really have to talk about inequalities and also experiences of discrimination. If we say we don't only want that people like each other, but that really that people are treated more equally. So if we really want to push or promote social change towards greater equality, this focus on discrimination and inequalities is very much needed. And do you have experience, maybe also how could, for example, teachers really put that into practice, you know? So if you're aware, oh, we should also talk about inequality. I think that's also a topic that many educators feel very insecure about, you know? So do you have any advice maybe for educators how they might implement these findings? Yeah, so my advice would be like, first, we really have to create a climate where people trust each other and where they feel secure. Because we also know if we just talk about discrimination and inequalities, then sometimes people that are advantaged in certain situations might feel put in a corner and be really defensive and that can create backslash. So again, first, we have to create an environment where people really feel comfortable. And then once this is done, we can talk about uh, maybe also experiences and differences and experiences. So we don't always have to directly talk about discrimination. Again, if people feel really comfortable, we can, but we have to be really careful that we don't have backlash. But we can talk about how different experiences feel really unique and also what are challenges that maybe some people face and others don't. Because we know that perspective taking is really important. Empathy is really important. Also, of course, the knowledge that inequalities exist. So we, we have to create this awareness and really this empathic reaction that we feel, wow, it's something we can understand that it's painful and it's hurtful and it's difficult. And therefore, we want to challenge that together so that everyone here really feels included and safe. And I think that's also a message that we have to say, okay, it's something where we want to bring people together. For example, in the LGBT context, in school, visits, what we do is we ask sometimes people question, they can say yes and no. For example, are you left-handed? Yes and no. And we ask people, what is your hobby or different things? And then there are some questions where people really have the option to choose them and others not. And then people first really experience, oh, sometimes I'm, I'm alone and sometimes I'm in a big group and maybe it feels more secure being in a big group than being alone. And also they really have this aha effect, oh, there's really some things that I can choose how I want to be and other things where I'm, like my ethnicity, my sexual orientation, my gender identities are things that I cannot choose. And if I'm alone there, it's even more difficult because the soccer club, I can just change it and go somewhere else. And with those things that I cannot choose, I cannot just leave them if I feel uncomfortable. So we have to do it somehow different. And I think those experiences can really be eye-openers for kids. But of course, after those games, we really have to talk about it and also kind of embed it in a little bit more, a bigger context to tell them, okay, what is the learning experience here and how can we really promote a more safe environment? And of course, then with adults, we would talk more about inequalities than maybe with kids. So of course, it depends on the audience as well. And it's a really interesting method, I think, also to highlight all these multiple group memberships, right, which might also reduce the boundaries between different groups, right? So kind of emphasize there are groups, but also to de-emphasize them at the same time somehow. I think that's interesting. And I mean, in your own research, you also focused, I think you already mentioned it, this large-scale study and international study that you ran. Um, and then you also looked at uh, links between intergroup contact and social change. And I think you also looked at how these links differ between advantaged and more disadvantaged groups. And could you maybe just give us a brief glimpse into what you found there or what you think your main takeaway was from this big study? 
So we ran a big study in more than 20 countries in both the ethnic context and LGBT context. So on one hand, we interviewed LGBTQ individuals. On the other hand, cisgender heterosexual people. And the ethnic context was quite broad. So in some countries, we had indigenous people versus non-indigenous people. Somewhere else, it was religious minorities versus religious majorities or migrants versus non-migrants. So we had really different groups there. But what we found in general is that if you're an advantage group, like an ethnic majority or cis heterosexual person, having more contact with disadvantaged group members really promotes your collective action or your support for social change towards greater equality. So there we really found consistent positive effects. For minority members or disadvantaged group members, the effect was different. Here we found that the better and the more contact they had, the less they engaged in support for social change. And that's maybe a little bit in line with the paper what we found before, that just having good contact might not be enough to really stand up for your rights. What we found in a follow-up study was that if we really um, talk more about empowerment, if we feel respected and perceived as competent, and this can buffer, and that's something we now try to follow up in an experiment setting where we want to see how do we have to really operationalize contact, what do we have to discuss during situation where we bring people in contact that we can prevent this irony of harmony effect that disadvantaged group members engage less in support for social change the more they feel personally accepted by the advantaged groups. Stealing of empowerment that you mentioned, from my understanding, that's more most important for minoritized or disadvantaged groups, right? So, and how would you say, how can we promote this feeling of empowerment so to prevent that uh, intergroup contact eventually uh, doesn't promote social change? I mean, what can we do to make uh, minoritized groups feel more empowered? Yeah, I think one important thing is to listen to them and to also take the experiences as granted. So, for example, what we see very often is that if, for example, a person of color explains us about discrimination or also an LGBT individual, people might be like, I assure that it's really discriminatory, particularly if it's ambiguous, or maybe the person just had a bad day. So they find a lot of reason why it's not a discriminatory act. However, we have to say, okay, sometimes it might be that the person has a bad day, but if those persons experience this over and over and over again, it's not only a bad day, there's a systematic pattern. So I think as an advantage group, one thing that we can do is to really listen to people and to acknowledge their experiences and to not try to always downplay their experiences, because I think it can be really hurtful for the individual person, but then also really inhibit the social change that we would need. Another thing that I think is important is that uh, we also speak up for minorities as advantage group members. Of course, we have to see in a situation, is that adequate or not? But we have a big power as an advantage group member that sometimes you're even getting more credibility, which is kind of paradoxical, but there's a lot of research showing that if men talk about sexism, they're granted more credibility than if women would uh, name the whole same problem as sexist. So also there we have a big power. And then, of course, um, now getting to know people better and to not just be paternalistic, but really help them by empowering them in a way that maybe you support or you stand behind them to support them instead of taking the spot for them. So, I mean, no, it's, I think it's a little bit this, this picture that we have a demonstration when sometimes we have an anti-racist demonstration and the white people stand in front and take the spotlight away from the people that are affected. So I think it's very important that we are there as allies, but maybe we still should stand in the back and support those people without taking the space so that we are not paternalistic, but supportive. Yeah, I think here I'll just want to jump in about this demonstration things also from the personal experiences I always see. I think if you are a privileged group in those kind of events, also what sometimes dealing with the um, officials, you know, the police and all these like difficult situations. And sometimes I think that's also people who have more privilege in terms of having a lighter skin or in terms of not being racialized. I think there it's also helpful for them to deal with these conflicts to be able to kind of protect the people who can be easily racialized. Yes, sometimes I think we expect a privileged group people to stand a little bit back, but sometimes also use their privilege in those conflict situations where they can calm the situation down easier, for example. That's also one thing that I've experienced and observed, I guess. 
since we had already been talking about your interest and working with LGBTQ individuals, I wanted to jump in and talk about other panel studies. So um, we know that together with your colleague, Leila Eisner, you're already leading a Swiss LGBTQI panel study. And um, that area, like you're already collecting like fourth wave of data in 2022 that we have seen in your website. And uh, yeah, we're curious, can you tell us more about why you initiated this nationwide panel study? Yes, so it's kind of a follow-up of the multinational study where, of course, we were collecting data in a lot of countries, but only once. And when I met Leila, we already collected some LGBT data in different contexts, and she really brought the French language. So we were like, hey, why don't we team up and we really try to collect data in whole Switzerland? We were really lucky that one friend of hers, uh, he's cis heterosexual and male, but he thought the project was really cool. And so he translated everything into Italian. So we really could offer the survey in Italian, French, German and English. We're missing Romanche, even though Switzerland is small, they have four official languages. But basically, really having French, Italian, German and then English for foreigners made it possible to cover whole Switzerland with our survey. Originally, we only wanted to conduct it once. We were hoping for 200 participants, and then we had already 1,600 within the first year and a lot of positive feedback. So all the LGBT association within Switzerland shared the survey. And we then wrote the report because we said we really want to give back to the participants. And also there we received a lot of positive feedback, and this really encouraged us to continue the panel in a more annual way to really also follow people over time. And two years ago, at the beginning of COVID, we got this Agora grant, which is kind of helping us with the outreach. It ran out, but for one and a half years, it really enabled us to have some students that would help us to establish a homepage and social media accounts. And then through that, also our participants increased. So this year, we have more than 3,500 participants. I would say 3,000 LGBT and then 500 cisgender and heterosexual. Wow, that's a, it's growing. It's a, it feels like it was like a small project, like little, relatively small, and then it feels like it had grown. So I'm actually also curious because I've seen this wide uh, survey studies in U.S. context that in the topic of LGBTQI or like trans children, non-maniac children, but I haven't, while I was looking in European context, I haven't seen that LGBT individuals or like adolescents or children, it's not much of a big topic. That also made me think of the grants for this kind of big research. And when I was talking to someone in this grant workshop, and then she also told me, ah, oh, that's a very niche topic. It's hard to get a grant and to do this study. So you said that you got a grant and then you have actually a bigger team now. Yeah. How was this possible? Like, where did you get your grant? And did you also experience like, you know, this like a niche topic or something? Yeah, I think it's definitely a niche topic and a lot of people told me that it would damage my career to focus on LGBT issues. So also within social psychology, I got the advice that I should not only do this. I think the financial situation is definitely an issue also for us. Currently, we have no funding anymore, so we're really struggling keeping our students. And also Leila and I spend a lot of unpaid overtime making this panel, but also the reports possible. So most of our work is unpaid overtime, particularly the outreach time. Yeah, I think in Switzerland, the problem is that I think the Swiss National Science Foundation is in general open for LGBT topics, but really conservative in funding early career scholars. So we have more the problem there. They don't found people if you don't have a three-year contract, which almost no postdoc and senior lecturers have. And currently I'm employed by the Swiss National Science Foundation, so I can also not apply. So we really have the struggle to get money. Also, we had a big magic quality study and Leila and I still have debts from that. So we have to pay that off at some time because we had to run hair cortisol analysis, which are quite expensive. So the funding is definitely a big issue. And then we try to apply for other scientific foundations where we don't have this problem that we're too young. And we had big studies where people in the US were really excited. People in Canada were really excited. And here in Switzerland, we got two sentences uh, as a response saying that there is no scientific relevance in our work, which stands a little bit in the contrast that we have the Federal Office of Switzerland reporting about our data, we publish in really high journals. So there's still this tension that maybe particularly older scholars see less value in LGBT topics 
I think it's changing and it's definitely a little bit different in the US. So I hope that maybe at some point funding agency will be more willing to do so because I think also for us, we can do that maybe another one, two years, but at some point we cannot just spend our weekends and nights working on the panel unpaid. We need some support and also maybe by PhD student or postdocs that can help us with this big project. Yes. And I also, I think you were mentioning that sometimes when we're collecting data as researchers, we try to give back to the participants and then give back them a little bit also, you know, in terms of monetary things. And like the fundings are also important to be able to give back to the participants for the information that they provide to us to benefit for our like research and our careers. And so since you have all this um, data and then I think you have analyzed it a bit and then see the some results, so maybe um, can you tell us like what are some like preliminary results of this panel data and like do you have already an idea um, how being a member of LGBTQ community feels like in the uh, Switzerland? Yes, good question. So again, I mean, we ran the first studies we, or the first papers. Um, I, I'm sure there's much more in the data. We're also happy for collaborations there. So what we find every single year is that gender minorities or so non-binary people, trans people, intersex people are way worse off than sexual minorities, like bisexual people, homosexual people, pansexual people. So we really experience more discrimination and their well-being is worse. This year, we also assessed a whole bunch of other mental health and also physical health measures. So we are really interested in seeing what we find there. But this is a really, really consistent pattern that there's way more discrimination against gender minority, which translates in this worse health outcomes that they report. We see the same with heterosexual minorities. We see that homosexual people, so gay men, lesbian men, but of course also non-binary people that identify as homosexual, are better off than by and pansexual people. And we also had one master thesis led by Cynthia Tierney that we just published. And here we really see that bi and pansexual people face discrimination not only from cis heterosexual people, but also within the community. So they also feel discriminated by homosexual people. And I think that is really something where we have to say, okay, also within the LGBT community, we have to work on making the environment safe for everyone and maybe standing up for those that still face more discrimination challenges. What is another pointing that is really shocking for us is that even though we had COVID and therefore less contact in general, we found that uh, approximately 15% of the gender minorities and 7% of the sexual minorities reported that they experienced physical violence within the last year. And then if we look at sexual harassment, the numbers are higher. And then, of course, more mild forms of discrimination, the numbers really go up the roof. So also here, it's not that it's not a problem since uh, now the anti-discrimination law has been extended to include sexual orientation, but not gender identity in, in Switzerland. We had also last year the vote on marriage equality that passed, but still people experience a lot of discrimination. And at the same time, at universities, there's not a big focus on LGBT students. It's slowly coming, but there should be done more. At schools, there should be done more. Also at the workplace and, of course, in the public sphere, people really feel like people stare at them. They feel unsecure, they feel unsafe to hold hands. So there's a lot of topics coming up every year where we really see that there's still a lot of inequalities happening. Yeah, so I think from what you said, like, for example, bisexual or pansexual people are being feeling less well mentally because they're being more discriminated from both groups. I kind of make it, I think it sounds a little similar to this having as like an ethnic minority, having like this hybrid identity. Or for example, if you say I'm Turkish German, maybe it's a bit harder for people to understand, you know, you belong to these two groups. And then I think pansexual or bisexuals, like you can be like having this attraction to both distinct groups. Like you can be passed as like heterosexual or it can be passed as like a homosexual. But I think the human mind at the moment is that I think it's also having difficulties of seeing identities a little bit more fluid or like inclusive. I think that's the, um, I kind of see that overlap that this hybrid identities or like more broad identities are hard for general public to understand. So I think I make it that similar. But so following up on this panel data and then for your future plans. So where is this panel going and what kind of other things that you're curious at looking at? And how would you be able to translate this into more like practical knowledge? Yeah, so where's the panel going? We had this year the fourth wave of data collection. 
We are currently preparing a report for this year's data, and then we are having to set up already the questionnaire for next year's data. Besides the panel, we did a big study on the marriage equality referendum that took place last year, where we collected data before, during, and after the referendum among both LGBT people who have been targeted by the referendum and cis heterosexual people who have not. And there we collected both survey data and among a subset of 600 people also the hair data to see how the self-reported stress corresponds with the mobile stress that we can measure via cortisol that we can attain from the hair. This year in October, we will have a big workshop in Boston where we will bring 50 scholars interested in LGBT topics from four continents together. And also there the idea is how can we work more together? There's a big fragmentation and a lot of U.S. scholars are more focusing on the context there, European scholars maybe a little bit here. So we want to bring people together to work together. With the panel, we are trying to find new ways for funding. As I said, we run out of funding, so we have a hard time to keep our students. We want to make sure that they are paid. We also see this as an empowerment that queer students can be involved in the project and also really write their master thesis using our data. And at some point, I would like to run another multinational study. Leila and I are also the Swiss representatives for a European research network on LGBT research. So also here, we want to really expand at some point again. But also for that, we need some funding because it's just not feasible for the two of us to do all those projects alone. This brings us to our next section, uh, the future. And so I'm curious what you think, what changes you would like to see in the upcoming years regarding your research topic. You already mentioned a bit, but also in academia in general. Yeah, I think in research topics, I think diversity is important. Also, um, like where do we get those data from? There's an overrepresentation of the US, but also Western Europe. So I think there we have to diversify more. I think we have to diversify the researchers. We have to listen also more to the people from the global south. For example, when I went to Chile, the professors at the University of Cologne, or at least some of them, told me, why are you going there instead of going to the U.S.? And honestly, I think I learned way more using those longitudinal data in Chile. So I think maybe we should reflect our own stereotypes too, to be more welcoming and more open and also to learn more from other researchers. I think we should definitely apply our work and not just focus on where to publish and how I to publish and how many citations we have. And as a discipline, I would wish for better working conditions. I think young scholars face a lot of uncertainty along a lot of exploitation. There's still the assumption that people have to work countless of overtime unpaid. I think that has to change. I think there has to be more security, at least after the PhD, that people at some point know whether they can stay or not. I think it's really, really unhealthy. And I see that with a lot of my colleagues that they're really suffering currently. Um, also, I had to move a lot and it's really tiring after a while, even though I like international stays and collaborations. I would hope that people really work more together. And yeah, I think we should also work more with, with people outside of academia. It's not always easy. It's sometimes difficult. There's different expectations. But it can be really, really stimulating. Like I worked with practitioners here in Switzerland, but I also had a uh, consultation with the U.S. Institutes of Peace where they asked some scholars to give them advice on how to reintegrate former radicalized people. I attended a meeting in Slovakia where they brought NGOs and businesses interested in promoting LGBT justice. And I think that can be really, really stimulating and also, of course, help us to do better research and more interesting research. So also, I have this little follow-up question about your international collaborations that you're mentioning. So you did so many international work and then you're still doing, you're trying to initiate it. And I feel like you had started these collaborations quite early, like as a very junior um, scholar. So how did you initiate these big collaborations? I have like 50 people in one paper publishing and... <laughs> And so what are the um, some advantages of this? And you already mentioned a bit, but what are the challenges of these collaborations? Yeah, how to initiate it? I think just approach people. People are very open. I mean, of course, you should show them that you know their work and that you have a good idea. But sometimes, particularly students are really shy. So for all my internships in New Zealand and in the US, I just bought the people and I was like, hey, I'm really interested in learning more about intercopulation. I did this and this and this. And I would like to come to learn more about your work. 
Again, one time it was about violence of the police against people of color. The other time it was a big longitudinal study in New Zealand. So I really just approach people and I think very often it worked. So I go and ask them and sometimes people get the advice to always ask the supervisor. I would say, just go by yourself. I think you don't, I mean, sometimes of course it can be helpful if you're a supervisor or a professor, you know, already has the connections, but very often people also appreciate if they see the initiative really comes from you. With the multinational project, it started, I wrote my master thesis in Chile, so we had this connection already. Then there was a seed money grant from Switzerland that fostered collaboration between South America and Switzerland. So I went to Johannes, my former supervisor, and told him, hey, that, wouldn't it be nice to really apply for that so we could kind of deepen the connection I'm already having. And then Johannes and Roberto brought some people on board that they wanted to give us feedback to, and they all really liked the project. So in the end, we had a workshop here with 12 people. They stayed, and after that, I thought it was so cool that I just reached out to other scholars in other countries and asked them if they want to join. So also here, even though I was at the beginning of my PhD, a lot of professors also joined. So I think if you have a good idea, just take the courage to approach them. I mean, in the worst case, they say no. Sometimes they don't reply, but very often you will get positive responses. Again, what is nice, I mean, I learned a lot working also with different professors. So I think at the beginning, we were like 20 people were in their PhD postdoc and 20 were professors. And now, of course, over the five years, that shifted. But I learned a lot working with a lot of established scholars. I also learned that there's not one way to write papers. Sometimes people had really contrasting views. Of course, multinational projects take a long time. We started with the data collection, I think, 2016, and the paper has been published 2021. So during the PhD, that is a very, very long time. I'm also involved in four other multinational projects where I just contributed data, starting also from 2017, and none of those data have been published so far. So that can be really a major drawback for early careers that need publication at some time. Then, of course, working with people from many different countries is sometimes difficult because norms are different. Also, norms of deadlines are really different. The deadline in Germany and Switzerland is not the same as the deadline in Chile. And then, of course, also sometimes the power relation. Being a PhD student who has to tell the professors when they have to do something takes some time to really grow into this role and to feel confident enough to say, okay, I'm maybe just a PhD student, but I'm still a project leader and therefore I have to set you deadlines and I have to run after you and say you have to do your work. So also there it's sometimes a little bit challenging and of course sometimes there were conflicts, but I think what we did really good, we tried to integrate people in different steps. We also had an Excel sheet where people would get points for different things. So it was more collaborative than other multinational projects where people just collect the data and then they see the final paper and they don't really identify. So we met several times in Zurich, we met at conferences and I think that really at least I hope so, created this feeling of we are one group and we are having fun and we are doing this project together and we really established something big. And now the different team members can also really work with the data and lead their own projects using this data set. So for us, it was really important that it's not only us having all the benefits, but also the work, but that we now can also give it to the others so that they can really also lead their own projects to make it more collaborative. That's very nice. I like this kind of creating also the shared group identity, you know. So, But I was wondering, what do you think is really needed if you have such a diversity also of different experiences, different backgrounds, different opinions or approaches to the research? What do you say is needed or is important to somehow, you know, combine these different interests or what would you say should we pay attention to if we try to do that? I think a clear goal, like what do you want to achieve? I think it's also important to clearly communicate at the beginning what is the expectation. Like, do you expect that people just collect the data? How much data do they have to collect? Or can they be more actively involved? So, of course, there's really different ways how different multinational projects work. I think there's not a right or wrong, but I think it should be clearly communicated because if people think that it's more collaborative and then they're just used as a data collector, and particularly if that affects people of countries that are underrepresented, I think it can also really have a negative taste to it that people feel exploited. So I think also there are really clear communications, then also clear encouragement. And maybe if people feel unsecure, they could be teamed up with someone. For example, when I was in Chile, they would always train people in statistics by having someone who was a little bit more advanced, taking care of people who were earlier in their career. 
in this way, maybe people say, okay, I'm a little bit unsecure, but I can take over this task if I have someone that I can go to if I have questions. I think that could be something that could be really, really helpful. Also, during our collaboration, I experienced at the beginning when I met some of the scholars at conferences that they were really motivated, but they felt a little bit unsecure having 40 co-authors that would read the comments and then also a lot of professors. And I think also here we have to say, hey, but you have a really unique perspective and you can bring something. So please, we really value the comments. And I think maybe also sometimes positive feedback. It's also not always my strength, I'm German. So in Germany, we're talking more about what we can improve than what we did good. But I think also they really give this feedback. And as a project leader, we really have this individual communication that you write people personal emails to really establish also their little bit of relationship. Yeah, thanks so much for the advice. I think there were a lot of things to keep in mind, you know, if someone really wants to start uh, an international collaboration like that. And if you would give some advice to PhD students, for example, would you recommend them to go as big as you did? Or <laughs> would you rather say start small and try to initiate a small international collaboration? So again, I think it depends at which stage of your PhD you are. I think it depends if you want to stay in academia or not. And again, no, multinational projects can bring a lot of experiences, a lot of fun. I really like working with people. I love meeting people. That's why I really like to go to conferences. That's also something I learned from Roberto. He was like, yeah, I can work with friends all over the world. That's a little bit the approach that I have. But again, it's just really, really, really slow. And um, also, I mean, between submitting a paper and having it published can be a year if it works well, sometimes even longer. So there it can be in the end really a lot of time pressure also on PhD students. So I think that's something you really should consider. I think it also really depends on the supervisor. I was really lucky because Johannes Ulrich, who has been my PhD supervisor, was really, really supportive. Also in financing two of the three workshops for the last one, we got a grant from the Swiss National Science Foundation. So also there, do you really have the support that you can lead it and also that you have someone to go to if there's conflicts? Because, of course, being a PhD student, it can really push you down too. And then you need someone who really helps you. And also the collaborators you now have really clear expectations, see what they can do and what not. And also there, look for someone who could be maybe a second mentor and also help you. Maybe have sometimes a different approach that you really have different people where you can also get support if you need it. Yeah, I think maybe uh, this final question again about you mentioned doing this like knowledge transfer and outreach activities. And so what would you also recommend like this early researchers or like senior researchers? Because sometimes it's also there's this different like what can a junior researcher and a senior researcher can do. So what would you recommend for both levels of researchers who want to engage in more like knowledge transfer activities? Would there be like different ways of doing it for juniors and seniors? Yeah, I mean, of course, the problem is just that juniors have less resources, both in terms of time and also financially. So, of course, that uh, adds some restrictions. I think what we should do in general is really provide the feedback that we promise participants. I think sometimes we're really, really bad. I filled out a lot of questionnaires where people said I would get feedback and I never heard back from them. I think that's a really bad habit because people are spending their time to help us do our stuff and they really expect to get something back. So I think that's the first, we should really write those reports and then also write them in a way that people can understand them. If we just send them the paper, it's not really useful. So for example, for our annual reports, we really use easy descriptors. We try to not really have a lot of statistics and we really try to explain it really, really easy. What we see is that a lot of NGOs um, use this data. As I said, even the federal office of the Swiss government talked about our data set. So having those reports really also helped us to get the visibility that we wouldn't get otherwise. And we had different cities approaching us, also security departments of cities approaching us, how they can foster LGBT inclusion. We talked to the Swiss Army that wanted to be more diverse. We talked to different companies. We had the equality offices of all Swiss universities um, that invited us to give a workshop for them. And then later, some universities invited us to give presentation there. So there's a lot of stuff coming. So I think this investment really also helps that our work gets seen. And then again, no, I think also if we want to have participants that continue for a time, if we give them back, there's also more investment from their time because they see, hey, it really has a value. I get something back and it's not only to the benefit of the researcher. So also there, I think we wouldn't be able to keep the penny if we wouldn't give back to the participants. Yeah, then again, no, I think... 
it has to change that people start to value those outreach activities more. Also, when we employ people, we should say, okay, it's an important part that we should do as social scientists, but of course it takes time. So maybe we should also acknowledge that compared to the publications, that if I only write papers, I can publish more than if I also engage in other things. Finally, I would encourage all PhD students to really write up the results and also try to give some talks. I learned a lot doing so. I think also the question I got, they were very often really, really, really stimulating. I had a lot of really interesting discussion. We got a lot of feedback that we implemented for the next year's survey. And honestly, for me, the discussion, I learned very often so much more than I would learn as an academic conference where we get always kind of the same talks about some statistical models and not much more. So also there, I think it can really enriching also for PhD students to gain that knowledge. Okay, then we have one final question for you. How do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? A good question. Um, I mean, as I said, there was a downsides also now with COVID. Also the financial struggles, writing grants all the time, not getting them because LGBT research doesn't have the value. That's really frustrating. I think what motivates me is really to get this feedback also from outside of academia that we see our work has an impact, it's seen. We also get this feedback within academia. We are now working with people in Australia and in the US and in Canada. Um, as you said, in the US, there's a similar longitudinal study. So we want to do some comparative analysis where we really bring this data together. And I think that is really exciting to see, okay, people start to see it and they see it as something really unique. And yeah, I think as, as long as I can do that, I will stay. Of course, I also hope at some point that I get a permanent position. I think it's really, really training to always have those limited contracts and a lot of financial insecurities, not personally in my situation, but about funding our students who sometimes also are in precarious situations. But I think it's really the feedback from the participants, the feedback from organizations that value the work and also the international collaboration that keep me going. And I still have to say that I'm really lucky here with Johannes, who was my former supervisor, and now I'm still working at his chair, that I really have the freedom to do the work that I want to do. We have one project together, otherwise I really have free hands and that he's also really supportive there. And I think that's something that is really needed as an early career scholar, that people who are maybe a little bit more advanced uh, support you, give you the confidence, and are also there when it's difficult. Yeah, I think that sounds also quite inspiring. And then maybe that's something for senior researchers to think about, <laughs> um, like giving the freedom and support to the junior scholars to do the work that they are really inspired to do. Thank you so much, Tavia, for joining us today and for helping us increase the visibility of outstanding social scientists such as yourself and of cutting-edge research. Thank you all for our listeners and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design and Zeynep Alpay for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon. Music